listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2018. Today's episode is titled, Culture of Contentment. Positive economic experiences are, many times, if not most times, the byproducts of positive communications. Whether business to consumer or business to business, affirming human communication is important. Such interaction occurs when people speak positive words, not negative words, such as grumbling. Leaders and managers should model for all organizational stakeholders a life of meekness expressed by the proper use of the tongue. Organizational cultures populated with people prone to grumble against one another will be toxic. But organizational cultures built with people who are meek will be healthy. The difference is that grumbling against one another reflects discontentment with and lack of gratitude toward God. But meekness reflects contentment with and gratitude toward God. One of the marks of excellent, enduring, and productive organizations will be a culture of meekness that will facilitate the delivery of world-class value. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Patient Endurance. Well, good morning. Uh, we want to take a, this time to talk about James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And the topic I've uh, assigned to this text is the command to patient endurance. It is likely that many of the early Christians were slaves who worked under Roman citizens, many of whom were probably very difficult and harsh on their workers. In the previous verses, James contemplated the dysfunction of wealthy bosses who lacked maturity. Such bosses abused workers and who many times felt uh, hopeless and powerless. James wanted workers to know that God saw the abuses and the end would rectify the wrongs. So in the meantime, the proper response of faith in Christ was patience, patient endurance based on sound metaphysical thinking. This truth is a timeless universal principle. To stress this principle, James continued in this text, James 5, verses 7 through 12, to use the Greek imperative mood. In fact, he uses it 10 times. Up to now, we've had 39 occurrences of this particular uh, Greek form, Greek structure, which is a way for them to issue a command. In English, we would issue a command by the inflection of our voice, but in Greek, they would issue a command simply by the ending, the grammar that they used. So the imperative mood is part of that grammar. So in this passage, you have 10 occurrences of the imperative mood in six verses. Two of the verses, you have the imperative once, and four of the verses, you have the imperative twice. So this is a very interesting section. It's probably as um, intense a use of the imperative mood as any we have in the book, second perhaps only to chapter four. So clearly, James is trying to continue to stress what it is to live the lifestyle of Christ. And the key point he's trying to make in this passage is forbearance. Forbearance, patient forbearance, which are huge, huge ideas. To illustrate this, he uses several several metaphors, illustrations, uh, imagery. For example, he uses a workplace imagery, he uses a farmer which was a very common workplace uh, of the first century. I would say most of the Christians probably were engaged in farming because uh, it probably took uh, 80 to 90% of the people to to produce the food for the whole population. So most of them were probably engaged in farming. So that would have been a very common um, illustration for them, something they readily identify with. 
He also uses the illustration of the second advent, the uh, judgment day, and the reality that there will be a judge who will hold us accountable. He uses the Old Testament prophets and, of course, the, the greatest of all suffering saints, Job himself, to illustrate his points. So he's after really, again, stressing the importance of living a metaphysically aware, disciplined life, a life lived aligned with the will and ways of God. There's no transition between verses 1 through 6, which deals with dysfunctioning bosses, and 7 through 12, which is the encouragement, the admonition for patient endurance. It's interesting to see that uh, in the first six verses of chapter 5, he doesn't mention anything about brothers. He only addresses the people as the rich. Now, clearly, most of the rich probably were pagans, didn't know the Lord. But many of the rich, you know, could have been Christians. They could have been professing Christians. And so he doesn't spend any time, you know, distinguishing to it between whether or not the rich are saved or unsaved. He just calls them the rich. And then in this section here, verses 7 through 12, he gets very intimate uh, so what we have here now is the use of the word brother used four times in this text, in verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 12. And at one point he says, my brothers. So he's obviously trying to be much more intimate in this section, but yet he's still very strong in how he presents his teaching. James wants to make, make it very clear. If you truly are a Christian, you will bear the fruit of being a Christian. In other words, he's saying the same thing he said in chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. If you claim to have faith, but your works don't bear it up, your faith is not real faith. Dead faith is not real faith. Real faith will bear the works that are consistent with genuine faith in Christ. So let me read the text, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through it and discuss it together. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you will not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall into condemnation. This, again, is a very powerful text, a very direct text, a no-nonsense text really a text that uh, we probably would prefer not be in the Bible. But it's a very important text because these early Christians were suffering great persecution due to their circumstances. And we living today, we may not be suffering quite the same things, but we are still having challenges. And we're very likely to see an increase in the challenge and the increase in suffering in the days ahead. Verse 7 reads, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The admission of patient endurance is based firmly and clearly on the reality of the second advent of Christ, which brings the conclusion of the salvation process 
in those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Contrary to the common view of today, salvation is a process that contains three tenses, past, present, and future, and will be completed at the second advent of Christ. James reminds his readers of this reality in chapter 1. So if we look back at chapter 1, and we can read several verses there, verse 12, for example, he says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That's a reference to the future crown of life. We don't have the crown of life yet. So this aspect of salvation where we will receive the crown of life, which represents eternal life, is yet to be fully realized. So it's a future aspect that we will see in, you know, once we come, come to Christ in, uh, in the fullness of our lives. Going on to verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now this is referring to something that happened in the past. He's speaking again to professing Christians, saying that you have been born again. This being, being brought forth is actually a term that would be used of giving birth. So this is a clear reference to being regenerated, being born again by the power of the Spirit, the sovereign work of the Spirit. And this happened in the past, if you really know Christ today. And he goes on to say then in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. So there is a present tense reality of receiving the implanted word of God. And making and basically receiving it in such a way that it, it has, has root in us and being changed forth in us. And then he goes on to say, which is also able to save your souls, which again is a reference to the future tense. So you can see in this text here, starting with verse 12 through about verse 22 in chapter 1, he makes it very clear that there are three tenses of salvation. Now, he doesn't spend a lot of time on the past tense or much time on the future tense. He spends his time in this book of James on the present tense of salvation. That is his, his stress, his focus. He, what he's after here is calling us up to our level of responsibility in the process of sanctification. Another way to talk about the present tense of salvation is sanctification. Sanctification is where we are becoming more Christ-like in our character, in the, our lifestyle, our words, our actions, the way we use money, the way we work, everything in our life begins to reflect Christ. The past tense of salvation was the sovereign work of God to regenerate us. We had nothing to do with that. And the future tense of salvation is the glorification that happens when we pass from this existence to the next. And we have nothing to do with that. So those two aspects are sovereignly of God. But this whole aspect of present tense, this sanctification, we have a responsibility. It's our responsibility to step up. And as Sproul says in his book on everyone's a theologian, he points out that we must cooperate with God. And our cooperation does not save us, but it validates, it indicates that we are indeed saved. You see, the whole issue of faith and works, which is the, you know, seem like it's for a forever discussion in the body of Christ, is it's really pretty simple. You know, works don't save us. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, but works do reveal whether or not we are saved. That's the essence of the Christian gospel that seems to be largely misunderstood today. So going on here, verse eight, he says, you also be patient. 
Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Well, clearly this verse goes with verse 7. And it's all providing us the more challenge, more, more specific direction about what we're supposed to do. Be patient. That's an imperative. It's not an option. Be patient. We're called to patient endurance. And this reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. You know, the, the way to patience is to get really grounded in Christ. Here, James uses the phrase to be established, to be fixed, to be stable, to be firm in Christ. Paul, Paul says it a little differently. He says rooted and grounded. Notice Paul's words in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And he goes on to add the imperative, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So you can see there's a big challenge that we all have, the temptation of the world, worldly thinking, non-biblical wisdom that is bombarding us every day, offering us definitions for reality, offering us what, what the world would call truth. And so many times this teaching and this worldly thinking is contrary to real truth. Jesus also weighed in on this, the importance of being firmly grounded, um, using the imagery of building a house on a firm foundation. He does this in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount and probably one of the scariest texts in Scripture because this text is talking about the, the judgment day. And on that day, all these people that are going to come to Christ and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I, I, don't, I never knew you. And they're going to say, well, wait a minute. Didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And he's going to say, yeah, you did that stuff, but you lack one thing. And that is you did not do the will of the Father. That's the real criteria. And it's not that doing the will of the Father saves you. He's not saying that. But he's saying the validation that you truly know Christ is that you will do the will of the Father. And then he goes into this imagery of building a house. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does, does, does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, that's the, that's the risk that we all have. If we are not building our lives on Christ, firmly grounded in Christ, then we will be like that person building their house on the sand. When the test comes, when the trial comes, we'll simply fail. Moving on to verse 9, he goes on to say, Do not, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, the whole idea of grumbling is to speak negatively. It's to moan or sigh or murmur with discontent. It implies dissatisfaction, particularly with people, and therefore, and, and 
and furthermore, poor metaphysical awareness of people. When we recognize that God is sovereignly in charge of all circumstances, that no person is in your life by accident. Every person that's there is by the sovereign, intentional, strategic plan and purpose of God. And God has a good purpose to that. So there's no value in grumbling against one another. Don't do that. This is imperative. This is not a, a request. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. Don't grumble. If you grumble, you need to know that it will not go well with you. And here's the, the imagery. Then he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. And that word behold, again, is the imperative. It's saying, look. You know, we in English, we might really stress it, saying, behold. We're trying to get your attention. The judge is standing at the door. We were talking before about uh, the cameras that are on, on computers today and how they can be turned on remotely, and we don't necessarily know they're on. Well, that's an old picture here in modern times using modern technology of the same thing. The reality is God hears everything. There is really nothing, nothing that is secret, nothing that is private. Jesus made this point in Mark 4, 22, when he said, For nothing is hidden except to be manifested, nor is anything secret except to come to light. You see, whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you say, whatever choices you make, they doesn't matter. It will be revealed. And so we need to be recognized. God, God's going to hear all the grumbling. Even if you think you're grumbling quietly to yourself, even if you think you're grumbling privately to close friends, it doesn't matter. God hears it, and you will be held accountable for it. And that's, that's a serious, serious charge for us to really sober up. And of course, what James is trying to do is to get us to realize God is working good even through all of these very difficult situations that you're grumbling about. If you're having a relational problem and you're grumbling, you're having a circumstance problem, you're grumbling, you have a financial problem, you're grumbling. Hey, God, God knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you need. And he's got a plan and it's good. And so can we get to the place where we can just be thankful, grateful, and stop grumbling? That's the challenge. And it's not easy for any of us. Go on in verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, most of us don't really want examples of suffering and patience because we don't want to deal with suffering and patience. We want life to be easy and pleasant and comfortable and convenient and the trials and tribulations just to go away. But that's not the way God works. God works through trials and tribulations. That's how this book started out. He starts out to count it all joy when you face various trials and tribulations, knowing that God is working through those to transform us. That's what he's doing. Trials and tribulations are the spiritual gem to work us out, to make us better, to make us more Christ-like. And as an illustration here, the imagery here is the Old Testament prophets who endured trials and tribulations, but they were grounded in the will of God and patiently endured the suffering. James wrote knowing that his readers were well grounded in the Old Testament scripture and therefore knew well the story of the prophets. Furthermore, these Christians may have been familiar with the words that were penned by the writer to Hebrews when he addressed this issue. So let me read to you how the Hebrews addresses this whole point of trials and tribulations of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 39. And what, what shall I say? 
For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may, may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these were commended for their faith, not having received what was promised. You see, they, they came and lived prior to the first advent of Christ. We today live after the first advent, but prior to the second advent. Now, surely, if these Old Testament prophets can endure this suffering and keep their, their eyes looking ahead to Christ and keep their hope on the resurrection and the return of Christ, then we, living after the first advent, certainly we should be able to do that as well. So that's his challenge. And then he wants to use another imagery to make his point. In verse 11, he says, behold, and again, this is an imperative. This is, a, again, he's saying, behold, listen, look. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Uh, most of us don't consider someone remain steadfast necessarily blessed. We consider blessings having to do with things going easy, things going well, being pleasant, comfortable, convenient, having plenty of resources and, and everything going your way. That to us is a blessing. Now, a blessing, a real blessing, is when you can stand steadfast in the midst of a trial or tribulation. And as an example of this, he uses Job. Now, when you're considering the virtues of patience and endurance, one may not consider Job to be an example. I mean, that was my first reaction when I read that. I said, are you kidding me? Job, really? I mean, look at this. Job lost his family, his wealth, his health, and then he went into self-pity and despair and he winds up with his worldly friends with their worldly wisdom, you know, trying to condemn him. And then they have this banter going back and forth, all of which is just worldly thinking. I mean, how is this being steadfast? Well, the steadfastness of Job in all this is enduring to the end and repenting, which is encouraging because we're all going to fail. We're all going to be like Job. We're going to get into our pity parties when things don't go well. We're going to grumble and complain, but you know, if you, in the end, you have revelation of how God was working through it and you repent, then, then you're in good company. That's what happened to Job. Because in the final analysis, Job was able to see the truth of the goodness of God. In Job 42, verses five through six, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. These are the wisest words that are in the book of Job, that Job uttered. And you have 40 chapters, 38 chapters of Job and, and all of his uh, nonsense. And finally, in 40, chapter 42, he repents. And he realizes that through this very hard, difficult circumstance, God was doing something really good. He gave me increased revelation. I had heard of you 
which is a level of revelation. But now my level of revelation has gone deeper. I now see you and I repent for my pity party, for my, all the things I said that were so wrong and so negative and so my grumbling and complaining, I repent. And so that should give us great encouragement because we've all probably been very guilty of grumbling and complaining about the tough situations of life. And we need to know this, there's hope. And Job is an example of hope. So take heart, repent, and begin to see the goodness of God. Whatever the pain and suffering that you've gone through, look for what God was doing. Be metaphysically aware of what he was doing to transform you through it, and you'd be thankful for that. Finally, verse 12, by many, according to many people, is really doesn't seem to fit that well, but I think it fits perfectly. Because the great revealer of where your heart is, is your tongue. And this section is really about the heart. Patient endurance is a heart attitude that's expressed in choices, in words, and in actions. And words are probably one of the greatest ways it's expressed. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is a very clear verse, and one that's, you know, it's, it's a repetition of something that Jesus said. This is not something unique to James. Jesus, he obviously heard that from his brother Jesus. But it's a very strong admonition about speech. The tongue reveals the state of the heart. Yes, I know we can have hypocrisy. People can fake it. I know that can happen. But if you're around fakes long enough, you eventually will see the truth. In the end, the tongue will reveal the true state of the heart. This command is not to remember our fallen state, you know, and that our sanctification is, but rather the sanctification is a process of purging sins out of us and placing them, placing them with righteous patterns. We need to replace our sin patterns with righteous patterns. And sanctification is that process of replacing bad patterns with good patterns. Our lifestyle patterns are most easily seen by the use of the tongue. That's where you can see more about people than anything else. Whenever you want to get to know somebody well, just, just have a conversation with them. Just spend enough time with them where you can hear what's in their heart and their tongue will reveal that to them. And we must learn to guard our tongues carefully. And we must learn to be thankful, to live very thankfully, no matter what the circumstances may be. Well, let me make a couple of theological points here. First of all, in our day and time, uh, there, it's, it's commonly assumed that there is no day of reckoning, that there is no end. We die and that's it, that there's no judgment day. And that would be, I think, very inconsistent with what James is saying. James is telling us here that there is an eschatological event known as the return of Christ, the second advent, and there will be a judgment where everyone will be held accountable for what they've done. Those whose names are written in the book of life will be, will be saved because they will have displayed faith in Christ. And those whose names are not written, they will go into eternal, the lake of fire, which is eternal death. And this is seen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, probably as clear as any. So we need to know that eschatologically, that James is very clearly uh, sees a return of Christ and he sees a judgment day. 
both of these realities. When we talk about the timing of the return of Christ, it becomes a little more difficult. And you can see these early believers seem to think that he was going to return quickly. But in the end, you hear we are 2,000 years later, and he's not returned. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to return. He's going to return. But it, remains, it, it reminds us that God is not bound by time as we are. God, the creator of time, is unbounded by time. And we don't know what his time frame is. And other, other verses of Scripture tell us that a thousand years is but a day unto the Lord, which tells you that his view of time is so different from ours. So it's just, this is one of those points that the early believers didn't get much clarity on. They didn't have much revelation about. And it's interesting that today we keep trying to figure out when Christ is going to return. And there are a lot of people speculating on it even today. But Jesus made it clear, this is outside of our purview. We don't need to know the return of Christ, when it's going to happen. Our job is to go and faithfully serve the purposes of God while we're here. That's why we're here. That should be our agenda. And we need to stop the speculation. But we need to be clear. There will be a return of Christ. And we need to make that hope very much part of our of our focus and our attention and part of our grounding. And there will be a judgment day when we will be judged and everyone will be judged. And the only thing, whether you're going to pass through the judgment, you know, successfully is to know Christ. And the validation that you know Christ is that you've lived as one who knows Christ. Another thing to keep in mind here is how the early church viewed patience. Um, Given the greatest commandment was to love the Lord, it would be natural to assume that the greatest Christian virtue would be love. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 even seems to intimate that, and perhaps it is. But the early church, that is the church from the first 300 years of existence, did not view it that way. Now, that may not have been right, but it's interesting to see how they viewed it. To them, the greatest virtue was patience. They viewed patience as being an absolutely essential trait of a believer because most of them were living in a persecuted state. Most of them were working for pagan employers who were very cruel and insensitive and many times abusive. And so they were having to deal with really physical hardships every day. And they obviously were looking forward to the return of Christ as deliverance from those hardships. So patient endurance was a big virtue and it also validated whether or not you were really a Christian. You know, those that didn't patiently endure were viewed as pagans, unbelievers. And so patience was the big virtue, the chief virtue of the early first 300 years of the church's life. So I think at, very, at the very least, we can learn from that, that patience should be a very high virtue. Maybe it's not higher than love. Maybe it's simply an expression of loving God is to be patient. But we need to be patient and we need to endure in the process of growing in Christ and patiently wait for the return of Christ. Well, there's just a couple of applications for you here. Uh, number one, don't grumble and complain. Endure hardship while you patiently wait for return of the Lord. In other words, we should, we should be very, very conscious that God is working good in the midst of any and every situation, every relationship, every circumstance in our life. We need to be very, very clear on that. And we need to follow the command here that James gives us. I've synthesized these 10 imperatives 
essentially into one command. We need to then live patiently. In whatever we're doing, whatever we're saying, we're around, we need to really live patiently. And we have to keep in mind that we have a lot of examples of how important patience is. For example, the farmer, which he cites in this text, he has to wait months for his crop to be produced. Women, when they are impregnated by men, they wait months before they can give birth. Once babies are here, it takes about 25 years to grow up physically. Historically, it's been common for organizations to take 10 to 20 years to mature and become worthy of investment by, by the public. Advanced degrees take two to 10 years to complete. And that's after you've been through a lot of training to get to the advanced training. Wisdom takes decades to develop in the hearts and minds of people. You don't, you don't have, just because somebody comes to Christ doesn't make them instantly wise. They have to embark on a journey of growing in wisdom. Uh, I sometimes hear stories about local churches um, recognizing young men who've only been believers five or six years as elders and, and just looking at that and thinking of the folly that that is. You know, how can you recognize a young believer, no matter what age he might be, as an elder? They need to be seasoned. They need a lot of time to really grow and mature and gain wisdom. Wisdom doesn't come quickly. It takes years of growing and maturing and being discipled to develop it. True love, that is sacrificially serving the purpose of God in another person, which is what marriage is all about, takes decades and maybe a lifetime. When people marry today, they don't marry out of love. That's, that's one of the illusions of the world. You know, at best, you might say it's a neurotic attraction. But the opportunity once you get married is to now develop love, to learn to sacrificially serve the purpose of God in the other person. And those of us that are married know that that's challenging. It's very challenging not only because of my own sin, but because of the sin of my wife. And so both of us, two sinners coming together, Neurotically attracted, now trying to learn to sacrificially love one another, it takes a long time. And the Holy Spirit is very patient, chiseling on us, transforming us. And so gradually over time, we begin to truly sacrificially serve the purpose of God in each other. And now we begin to truly love each other. Healing of mental and emotional wounds can sometimes take a long time. Many of us may be plagued by wounds from our childhood, and we may be in our 50s or 60s or 70s. And this is the reality in God's universe. It takes a long time to get healed, and it takes very specific, you know, godly people to many times guide us into the healing process. You see, the fallen world is complex, and many situations arise that look vexing. But we have a sovereign God who's dealing with us in our fallen state, and it's easy for us to want to blame God for challenging situations. And therefore, we don't recognize the goodness of God in every situation. We must learn to maintain proper metaphysical awareness. That is a key theme of this epistle. And we express that we do see properly from God's perspective when we patiently endure. Patiently endure. Do not be deceived, James says, my beloved brothers. Every good and gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That was James 1, 16 through 17. 
The ultimate illustration of metaphysical awareness is seen in the life of Job, who lost family, wealth, and health, and even had poor friendships trying to help him. But in the end, he was able to see the truth that he had heard of God, but now he sees. He sees him and he repents. So may we have that attitude, no matter what we go through, no matter how difficult it is, may we have the end attitude of Job, the end attitude of repenting, because we see God more clearly. We have more metaphysical awareness. We know his goodness more profoundly. We see that he's working good in our lives in the midst of the most challenging situations of life. And we say, thank you. So may we have the grace to be patient, to endure, and to be thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.